0: Richest woman in America, potentially the richest woman in the world at the time, has no issue in being able to afford medical care for her son, yet cannot bring herself to spend you know a dollar to go and get him medical assistance. Now, to be fair, what she did do is she apparently literally dressed herself up in rags, went down to the free medical clinic where the doctors were volunteering their time to seek medical attention. So she didn't completely ignore the injury. But she didn't pay to get him the best of care. And actually, his leg ended up having to be amputated.
1: Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the
2: unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'll be one of your co-hosts today. I'm Terence Toe from Strategic Corporation, and I have Nadia Hughes with me. Good morning, Nadia. How are you?
1: Good morning, Terence.
2: And today... Actually, Nadia is going to introduce our very special guest today. Go for it, Nadia.
1: And good morning, Erika. Erika is a senior business developer from a Morningstar. Why uh, she is on our podcast today, you may ask her, because I met her on one of the conferences and when I was listening to her presentations, presentation, I actually had goosebumps. It's a topic which everybody should know, everybody suspects it's a case, But nobody ever can just define it. What is it about human behavior and money? And Erika actually was answering so many questions which were already sitting and nesting in my head. And that's why her presentation was the most enjoyable presentation in the last month for me. So thank you very much for agreeing to be guest on our podcast. Erika presents herself as a perpetually curious. She reads a lot. And she's behavioral finance uh, Federal finance, what would you call researcher?
0: Yeah, I'm really passionate about behavioural finance. Came across it first time in 2000 when we we're talking about the power of defaults and really in relation to sort of superannuation defaults at that point of time. And then that moved into, you know, how people make choices and then is too much choice a good thing or a bad thing? What drives our behaviours? And it you know, all based around, I guess, what drives our behaviours in terms of money. And so I that really got me on a path of being really interested in terms of how the behavioural components of how people make decisions is quite at odds with all the theory, the finance theory and the economic theory and how people make decisions. And the finance theory is that you know we make um, decisions with our rational minds but actually we're humans, we're not robots and so we do actually bring our emotions into our decision making. And we've also got a lot of information being thrown at us on a daily basis, apparently about five times more information that we're processing. On a daily basis now than 20 years ago. And so we've got all these shortcuts that we undertake to make really good decisions that actually serve us really well in day to day life, but maybe not so well when we're talking about finance. And so that really interests me. And then, you know, I guess. Behavioural finance itself as a discipline has come into the forefront with all the attention around the Nobel Prize winners. And so the most recent one being Richard Thaler in 2017, he won a Nobel Prize for his contribution to behavioural economics. And he's actually really close to Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize in 2002 for pretty much what's driven the whole cornerstone of behavioural finance, which is prospect theory and why do we as humans when we're um, given two equivalent situations make two completely opposite decisions. Why do we show both risk-seeking behaviour and risk-adverse behaviour? That was his contribution to the whole behavioural finance school of thinking. And so it's really made everyone sort of sit up and take notice and actually incorporate behavioural finance techniques into the way that we engage with our clients. So banks, for example, have goal-setting accounts Purely because they, they know the way that we are it now. banks to jump on yeah.
1: straight away. Yeah, Nobel Prize, yeah, here we
0: are. Yeah, but, you know, so, for example, I have a Christmas saving account, and so that that's because that's the way that we mentally account for money in our heads. You, you have to upload the banks, really. <laughs>
1: you save them straight away. It yeah. must be good. Yeah.
0: And also um, Acorns, which is now raised, they've got this, and ING is also on board as well where you can actually, they.
1: Or Bay Food Investor, he names his accounts. Yeah. He gives the accounts real nicknames. Name and it's really, really resonates with public. And my daughter named your account according after him. And I'm just going, you've
0: <laughs> got to be kidding. Yeah, and I think that's it, right? So I think once you understand you know, how you make decisions, because I looked at it all and went, wow, is that the way I make decisions? And I, and it turns out that it is. And I spoke to my husband. He said, oh, no, no, I'm looking at everything holistically. I'm looking at all my money holistically. And that's what the economic theory says, right? A dollar is a dollar no matter where it's located. But actually, what behavioral finance shows us is a dollar is not a dollar wherever it's located. In our head, we have all these different mental accounts and each mental account has its own Budget, and we actually we're looking at each mental account on a relative basis. So, for example, I'm quite happy to go and save ten cents off a can of tomatoes at the supermarket, but then I'm not really so concerned about saving ten cents off a two hundred dollar pair of shoes. And because
1: shoes are really rational. What is it about <laughs> women and shoes? Why we end up with wardrobe full of shoes? Because <laughs> yeah, well, they're amazing. Um, shoes make what, you happy. <laughs> what, what, what is happening? What is behind the shoes? How can you support it with some theory? So, with so the, sure. the, the wife can turn to the husband, told you so. I needed it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I need to understand. Well,
0: more. well, I'll do my best. But, you know, in, in, in my mind, so I have a different, you know, bucket of my all my different accounts. And so I have my housekeeping account, which is my sh- supermarket shopping. I have my mortgage account. Obviously, I'm very strict in making sure that that's always paid. I have my superannuation account. And then I have my fun account, which is my clothing and shoes account. And, you know, I will be quite happy to actually not spend on that account for a month or two to actually get the really expensive pair of shoes that I really love. And that's a relative value thing for me. So I was like, okay, in my mind, I've got a budget each month for each of my accounts and I will forego my budget for one month to double it for the second month to get the actual pair of shoes that I want. Now that Budget is going to be completely different for my housekeeping. It's going to be completely different for my. I'm just mortgage. checking Edika's shoes yeah. at the moment. <laughs> she said I'm wearing really comfortable shoes because it's cold and wet. <laughs> well, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure <laughs> you saved up. And we're in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, and and I've, I've put money aside for my children. So I, what really resonated to me when I was reading the economic theory behind these separate accounts that we have is I will not touch the money that I'm putting aside for my children no matter what, even if I owe money on my credit card. Now, that actually is not rational because my credit card has a really high interest on it. I should be able to move the money from my children's savings account that I'm putting aside for them to pay my credit card, but I won't because that is a separate account, that has got a purpose, it's got a long term purpose, and I would feel like I was you know taking money from my children. And that's not a rational decision, that's an emotional so decision.
1: It's in a numerical sense, it makes you worse off in a well being sense of you feeling about yourself, you actually feeling more comfortable. And this is a paradox people always caught, and you call
0: it bias biases. That's right. Called? These are the biases that we sort of undertake on a daily basis. So the whole mental accounting component that we've just been talking about, that's a lot of Richard Thaler's life work, the guy that won the prize for behavioural economics in 2017. He's the one that came up up against this whole, what he wanted to determine is how do people make decisions about money? Why do people spend more on a credit card than they will if they pay cash, for example? So tell me why. Because credit card debt is
1: huge in Australia. And when, like for us migrants, I was shocked how people can save money. They also spend money they haven't earned. Yep. And I, I guess I'm coming from background where I would be, and later on we explain it, but I would be a defender in my uh, yes. pattern.
0: Yes, it's to do with transaction decoupling. So you actually buy it now but you pay for it later and so in your mind it's sort of separated out and sort of goes into a different bucket and that's really the premise why people will be prepared to pay more on credit card than they will when they're paying cash. It's, it's because you're getting the good now but you're paying for it later and it's, and it's really dangerous, right? It's only
1: prevalent here. Really comfortable country. But Nobody from overseas, especially from an area where they experience hyperinflation or anything like that,
0: people from, let's say, Eastern Europe, they look at this like it's insane. And I think you touched on a really good point there because it definitely the way that we think about money and relate to money definitely comes back to the experiences that we've had, and so we've done some studies on that in the US and shown that it different uh, you know people from different countries that that have experienced. Um, um, such things such as uh, hyperinflation, people at different ages that have gone through a depression or a recession will think about money differently and will respond to that differently. So it's that whole past experience, which we we're talking about before, and how that we're making all these shortcuts and uh, you know, our behaviours drive our decision making. That past experience definitely has a role to play and so you think about a lot Australia you know really for a long period of time we definitely had the banana republic and the recession we had to have back in the late 80s pretty much since then we've been in a pretty robust economic situation and so a lot of people haven't had so we bred generation of afterpay,
1: and it's absolutely scares me. I'm looking at my other daughter. One is very – she she's a defender, and another one is consumer. It's just yes. really – so I think we're coming – I'm already touching base on this categorization, so I really would like you to give us this little – Separation of consumers, different type of consumers, so I can refer to it now. Yes,
0: of course. So in Morningstar's office in the US, we have a nine-member team of behavioral economists. And of that team, five are PhD qualified behavioral economists. And they're doing some really interesting bespoke research on behavioral economics and trying to really make it practical for people to use And so one of the pieces of research that's been undertaken by a lady called Dr. Sarah Newcomb is around financial health. And so she's really tried to identify what makes somebody financially healthy. And what she's – you know, all the economic theory will show you that if you actually have, you know, a robust financial situation – then you therefore are financially healthy. Basically good balance sheet. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, you know, as accountants and advisors and business people will look at, um, you know, assets and liabilities, income versus expenses and, you know, and looking purely at the numbers and what they generate. And so that's what all the economic theory is, is looking at, just, you know, how do you look from a balance sheet perspective? And so... There's a great story about a lady that's no longer with us. She's been gone a long time, actually, over 100 years, and her name is Hetty Green. And she's a really extreme case that can really sort of, I guess, illustrate what we're we're talking about here. I love stories. (laughs) Yeah. Look, this lady, I find her absolutely fascinating. So... She inherited $5 million, which is equivalent to hundred million billion in today's terms. And through prudent investing, and it was pretty a simple approach actually, which was basically buy assets when they were low and sell them when they were high and sort of repeat, she was able to generate and accumulate over $2 billion in her lifetime. So she was an incredibly astute investor. And so she became known as the Witch of Wall Street. Now, women really weren't prevalent in investing at that time. You think back over 100 years ago. And so it's not a particularly endearing uh, term. You know, why was she called the witch of Wall Street? And it's probably for two reasons. One, she always wore a very dowel black dress and two, she was known to be incredibly miserly. And in fact, she's noted in the Guinness Book of Record as the most miserly person, which is not a great you know, um, claim to fame, I suppose. And that as the story goes, you know, an extreme example of how miserly she was is that her son injured himself sledding and he injured his knee quite badly so he needed medical attention and she was too miserly to actually pay for uh, doctor. Now, this is a woman who, as I said before, incredibly successful investor, has over a couple of billion dollars in today's terms, richest woman in America, potentially the richest woman in the world at the time, has no issue in being able to afford medical care for her son, yet cannot bring herself to spend you know a dollar to go and get him medical assistance. Now, to be fair, what she did do is she apparently literally dressed herself up in rags, went down to the free medical clinic where the doctors were volunteering their time to seek medical attention. So she didn't completely ignore the injury. What a good mother. <laughs> but she didn't pay to get him the best of care. And actually, his leg ended up having to be amputated. Oh. And so you kind of look at that and go, wow, what is going on with- in this woman's mind? Because clearly... She's financially secure. So this isn't a financial issue. This is an emotional issue. And how do we help her solve for this? And there's a whole heap of other examples of her really sort of miserly I behaviors.
1: Just, I, I just can imagine our listeners go there and in their head just recollecting whom they know acting like Hattie Green at the moment. And I'm pretty sure some recollect their mother-in-law. Some of them recollect their father or their neighbor or their business partner. Anybody would recognize, it's so recognizable, this pattern. And there are apparently four patterns. We just identified one of them. And what do you call it?
0: Yes. So what we, we've got four quadrants of behaviors, and this one is called a defender. So a defender actually does really well on all the financial metrics, financially secure, but they don't feel it they actually worry they don't sleep at night they oversave actually which i know sounds like a really sort of strange term but that's what they're doing they're oversaving to protect and defend their wealth warren buffett even said recently i think a, a report came out a week ago that you know doubling your money will not make you happy and i think that that's really interesting as a
1: but con- <laughs> Because it's coming from here. Yeah,
0: yeah. so he's a billionaire, he's an incredibly successful investor, absolutely, you know, held up as one of the most successful investors of all time and he's telling us, you know, money doesn't equal happiness. Now I know we'd all like to try and test that theory, like give me a billion dollars and I'll let you know if I'm happier or not, but this is kind of comes to the crux of the research that we've undertaken. So defenders, financially robust, emotionally not healthy. Then we have the masters. So the masters are people that we all want to be. And I don't think I'm a master yet. I think I've actually been in every single quadrant that we're going to go through. So a master is someone that is financially robust. The balance sheet absolutely stacks up, but they're also emotionally healthy. They are spending when they need to. They're not overspending. They've got enough for their retirement. They should never run out. They are, they've are. they got it absolutely all under control they're living a good full happy life and they're financially robust and that's what we should all aspire to be then we have the consumers and the consumers are those that are incredibly happy absolutely happy avocado smashes (laughs) that's right they're they're eating their smashed avocado they're wearing the latest fashions they're going to all the latest restaurants they're going on amazing holidays they're probably driving a really beautiful european car but they're living paycheck to paycheck they're not thinking about the future at all they're living in the now and so from a balance sheet perspective they've got nothing but they're having a great time and they're as happy as you could be so
1: i recently heard from very young guy i asked him to explain me this, this phenomena because they are living life what is it about you guys your generation what are you actually doing and he said we are accumulating experience because when you die all you will remember is your experience. You won't care about how much money in a bank you have got. And I said, kid, you got a point, but there is a problem if you do have to pay for the leg of your son.
0: <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Or, you know, you do want to have a house, you know, and when you retire, you want to be able to have a, a decent retirement and be able to afford to go and have your smashed avocado or your a latte or maybe even go on an overseas trip every couple of years. So... Yeah, and that, and we'll talk about how you can coach to help people through those behaviours. So clearly what's happening with consumers is they are living in the now, they're not thinking about the future and so part of the challenge is to get them thinking a little bit about the future. And we don't want them to be miserable, we want them to be happy but we also want them to be putting a little bit aside for a rainy day or for the okay. future. And then the final quadrant is the, the worst of all which is, and I don't really like the term, but the term is strugglers and you know these are the vulnerable that basically they're not financially secure but they know it and they're trying to protect and defend what little they have but, you know, they have so little anyway and so they're really living, you know, day by day in a really sort of tough circumstance and worrying when the bills come in. Now if I think about my own self, when I first graduated from university, moved out of home, was renting, I was a struggler big time, you know, and I was paying off my hex debt and, you know, I was living paycheck to paycheck and it was really hard to get ahead and I was wanting to get ahead, but it was really, really hard. Then I paid off my hex debt, started sort of, uh, I guess, getting it, you know, a bit more income through. And then I, I think I became a consumer big time. And so I was just spending, you know, and was definitely not thinking about the future whatsoever. Luckily, we live in Australia. We have the, um, you know, a a superannuation system that requires us to contribute. So otherwise, I I, I may not have had anything put aside at all. So that was the only thing that was being put aside. That's an interesting
1: point you're touching because it's anyone I know, because I don't know many. Two wealthy people, but going through this transition from really extreme struggle to suddenly this euphoria of having this first money and not saving, but rewarding yourself for all hardships they had to endure. Exactly, and it's such a typical uh, example. And people start booking holidays, start living life, and they exaggerate uh, this
0: compensation. Yeah, and I think you think it's going to go on forever as well. You're just living in the moment, and you know it's a bit of a trap. And so then, I, obviously, I got married, I had children and got a mortgage and, and worked really hard at paying that all you know, off as much as possible, got myself into a reasonable, robust financial situation, have some money in the bank. And now I'm terrified of losing that money in the bank, so now I'm a defender Um, and I don't want to spend a cent. (laughs) I'm not to the point of heady green yet, but, you know, and so my challenge is now to get across to be the master and so, you know, I'm working on that. And so that's the thing, I think, no matter what quadrant you're in at the moment, you don't necessarily need to stay there and then there's lots of things that we can do to move the different quadrants to actually then become, you know, a master.
1: We also have businesses which can be classified as... uh, through, going through those yeah, quadrants
2: type, I've just been mapping out the quadrant am I am I oh, <laughs> am I on, on uh,
1: the... <laughs> Terence is a master of all uh, <laughs>
2: you yeah, he just...
0: know he's absolutely done it that's ridiculous <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. as you've been talking I've just been kind of quietly having a look at this it's great for me I might we might even put this up on the on the website if we're allowed to yeah, I'm sure so, we can yeah,
1: absolutely fun. we will have reference to the research yeah, it, yeah. and, it was uh, one of the it's a Similar and I'm thinking, why did I think about it? Well, because everything genius would never comes up something complicated. They come come up some simple truth which resonates with everybody, yet nobody could identify it so simply. And that's what I really liked about this theory.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you have any research to tell us, you know, how many people or businesses, if we if we can talk in either terms, yeah. actually sit in one of in either of these quadrants?
0: So the only thing that I've heard from Dr. Sarah Newcomb is that most people are in the struggler actually so that's where the majority of people sit
1: most people would be also a lot of people going in their own business their businesses will be struggle and latest statistics i went to breakfast i always go to breakfast with insolvency people St- say the same thing that's why people do not survive businesses do not survive they struggle they can't meet, make their ends meet
2: so can we just expand on the traits of you know, each each one of you
0: know, yep. someone who sits in each one of these yep. quadrants. Yeah. So, a uh, master is someone that's got a great balance sheet and or has enough money to do what they need to do now, but put some money away for the future as well.
1: I, I identify that they live now and they think of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely thinking. You know, short term and long term. They're thinking holistically. You know, about the whole their whole. You know, life cycle. I suppose so whether you're a business or a person. Then the defender, they've got a great strong balance sheet but they're fearful and they're not spending a cent and they're not putting back into the business or they're not investing for the future. They're just, sorry, in terms of, sorry, then you've got the defender who's got the really strong balance sheet and they're not spending any money now. They're putting it all into the future. You know, They're basically saving it all and they're not actually sort of you know maybe spending the money to grow the business or spending money to just enjoy themselves, to reward themselves a little bit, to perhaps that, go that on the, the holiday. That's the reason
1: why my entire Soviet Union full of defenders and my grandma had the most elaborate funeral which she prepared herself for, wow. yet she lived such a frugal life. Yeah. But her funeral, were fantastic. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then the consumer is just living, you know, day to day and just um, so emotionally fantastic, you know, but their balance sheet's no good at all. You know.
1: Are they really emotionally fantastic? Don't they have these moments of being scared?
0: Maybe they do, but generally speaking, they're just pretty happy.
2: <laughs> so, but, but what we're talking about is, uh, you know, at the point in time where their financial strength kind of moves the wrong way too far, then they go into the struggler category. Correct. That's right. You can move
0: between the quadrants. And then the strugglers are those that are not – they don't have a strong balance sheet and they know it and Mm -hmm. they're doing their best to improve their financial situation, but they can't. They feel really powerless. And I think that that then comes into what the play, you know, who, who am I talking to? Where do I sit, you know, on this quadrant? Because it needs to, for a model to be useful, you need to sort of, you know, be able to uh, apply it. Mm. And so it's pretty simple actually to work out where you sit on the scale. It's basically it relates to two psychological factors and it's how far ahead we think. And then it's also whether we feel empowered or not. And so you know, if you want to know where you sit or where your clients sit on this, you've just got to ask two questions of yourself or of your clients. When you think about money, how far ahead do you usually plan? Now, if you're just planning week to week or month to month or even out to a year, you're a short-term thinker. And if you're a short-term thinker, then you are sitting in that consumer or struggler quadrant. Mm -hmm. And then you know, if you're thinking anywhere beyond ten years, you're likely to be a defender or a master. And what I think what was really interesting with a study that was undertaken by Dr. Sarah Newcomb and the team, and it was a US study. To be fair, they found that pretty much every year you thought out further. So for every year that you were thinking into the future basically equated to $20,000 more saved. So someone that was sinking 10 years plus had substantially more saved than someone that was just sinking, you know, very short term. So, the benefit then, as a business owner or as a individual is if you say, move from one year to two years, you're going to be twenty thousand better off if you've moved from two years to three years, you're going to be forty thousand better off you know if the American model rings true in Australia. By simply changing your mindset, your mental mindset about your money, you will actually start saving more effectively. And I think that's super powerful because we can't control, you know, a, a lot of things in our lives. In terms, you know, we may not be able to control our income. We certainly can't control our um, age or our gender. It's difficult to control well, education. Well, it is <laughs> doubtful
1: what you have said because everything can be controlled. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we can definitely change our mindset. Looks like one... <laughs> gender change. And, and definitely, with the right advice, you can control your balance. <laughs>
2: maybe I don't know can where this
0: podcast is going.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe you uh. can control the way you, you look in terms of age. I'm utterly sorry, I just lighten these things up because we are going into very heavy ones. Sure, sure. I really want to understand how people should be moving and like really want to understand how not to for people to stay trapped in these quadrons.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so with the behavioral coaching for those that are in the, you know, looking short term, thinking short term, living in the moment, that all you need to do is start to get them to visualize the future, so what we 've discovered or what the behavioral finance shows us is there's this thing called psychological distance, and so we 've all got it. We basically value what 's happening here now, you know more than we do what 's going to happen a hundred years' time across the other side of the world to someone else we don't know. Mm-hmm. However, what we can do is actually bring the future closer to us and by visualization. And so a lot of you will probably already do that with your clients. If you're talking to clients and talking about you know the future, you already be undertaking these visualization sort of exercises to help you know, them paint the picture of what the future could look like to make it more realistic. And
1: when I visualize with my clients, what an interesting thing is people who feel less empowered, they use very abstract language. So they would be somewhere in the future if you ask them to draw a future picture, they would use abstracted. They are well off. What does it mean to be well off? And we are going through exercise, and it's actually torturous to them because yes. what you're trying to do is give this detail, yes. become from abstract to concrete. And yes. I'm asking them, what does it look like, be able to help your children when you retire?
0: Uh, please uh, explain. Yeah, absolutely right, Nadia. So that's the challenge. You've got to really make it clear to them because at the moment, those that are looking really short-term, it's just a fuzzy out there, you know, like it's just meaningless almost to them. It's just not something real. I want to
1: afford to have holidays. Where do you afford? It's. Yes, I, I'm becoming yes, this past yes. and where do you would like to go for holidays? How much it costs? What does it look Which
0: like? Which is wise, three times a year. That is perfect because that's what you need to do. You need to give them the clarity for them to then go, okay, because then they're going be more on board with actually you know undertaking the activity foregoing something now for the future if it's actually more real to them so it's super important and then another example of how you can do this which i found really amusing is there's a professor that basically has this software where you can age someone's face so they take a a picture of someone and then age them by 10 years or so just
1: just don't (laughs) put makeup
0: on you in the morning and look at it. Yeah. And really that had a, a profound effect as well. That really helped people kind of see their future because, you know, here they are, 10 years older. Do you know what my clients tell me when I
1: ask them to take a tour in, in the future? They go to me, it's so depressing. That's when you know they need help. Yes, absolutely. And when absolutely. people go in the future quite freely and they think, I I go there and think, is it actually okay?
0: That's a funny It has nothing to do with money. It's all about language they're using. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I just think that just knowing that and knowing that that's what's driving, you know, people that, you know, we've all got this. We all value the now more than the the future. But those that are defenders and masters can also... Forgo a dollar now for the future and they, they can see the future more clearly so we know that the strugglers and the consumers are struggling to see the future so if we can help them see it more clearly and show them that you know what that looks like they are then going to be better off financially and then I know you're going to then say to me okay that's fine you're looking for the future and saving money but what if i'm on a really low income how am i going to do that so you're you know that all makes sense if you're on a high income or if i'm getting closer to retirement because you know it's obviously sort of breathing down my neck but what the studies so they actually did then um, control for that and they showed that even then mental mindset and actually was twice as predictive as any other factor and yes age and income did matter but the mental mindset mattered more, twice as much. And so I think that that's super, super interesting because, again, it's something quite simple that we can actually coach our clients through or coach ourselves through to get a better outcome.
1: Because savings are compounding even in your situation you think you are it's still a choice buying brand of ice cream brand of bread or deciding how much you're going to eat and how much you're going to spend on the groceries there there is an element of discretion as soon as you have element of discretion you have element of savings there it's a decision and commitment to this decision. That's what makes people wealthy. And I always, when people come to, I'm a financial planner as well, uh, when people come uh, to my consult session, it's not the balance sheet at the time will make them successful in the future. It's their attitude to the, what they do with the money. And my saying always to them is, um, I don't care how much you have got or how much you can save, it's what you do with it Absolutely. is important. And I explain them uh, the theory of compounding, how it works in snowball and the surface of snowball. Uh, it's just uh, interesting. I'm not going to take you away from your uh, what you're telling because it's fascinating. But it all comes uh, to the one simple truth. Don't worry how much you earn. Uh, what? how much you spend uh, and what you save and what you save it on.
0: I absolutely agree. And that it kind of goes on to the next point because it was sort of saying there's two questions you need to ask to work out where you sit on the quadrants. The other one is, you know, do you feel like you control your own financial destiny or do you feel like you're at the whim of external factors? And those that are feeling really powerless, so that's the defender and the, uh, the struggler, they just feel like they have no control whatsoever. You know, they feel completely disempowered. And so that's why they're behaving the way they do. That's why they're trying to protect what they can. That's why, you know, the defender's oversaving, saving And that's why they're not emotionally sort of robust or happy or you know, enjoying life. And so, again, I get that, you know, but how do you coach someone through that? We can show them all the ways that they can be empowered, and you touched on those just before Nadia. So it's like, yes, you know, you can't control markets, for example. You don't know, you know, what's going to happen there, you know, with absolute certainty. But you can control how much you spend, how much you save, you know, whether you have a plan, what your asset allocation looks like. There's a lot you can do to actually have some power you are not completely powerless you are not at the mercy of external forces you do have some internal capability to drive your outcome and if you can coach people through that then that is a massive advantage because at the moment if you're sitting again across the table from a defender or from a struggler they're not feeling that they have just feel like i've just there's nothing i can do
1: it's interesting. Uh, defenders look down upon strugglers big time and strugglers despise defenders because they feel the rich. That's where <laughs> the term filthy <"feel> the rich comes. <laughs> they don't enjoy it. Um, and um masters, I suppose, are just so chill they don't care about any of this. Uh, they don't get caught in these dramas of the market or anything. They're just like yogis sitting there waiting for the right time to strike another pose. And the consumers, well, they're kids. Some adults are still kids. That's what they're doing. That's why there is lack of perspective. They live in the now because they don't know what future is. Yep. Agree. Absolutely agree. That's my
2: trivial. (laughs) So one of the things I guess that I'm taking from this, and I don't know whether it's accurate or not, so I'll just check in and and see if it is, is that really what you're doing is, is attaching an emotion to an outcome or to an action. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So what we're saying is the economic theory is all about the balance sheet and the numbers. And the numbers are important, but actually it's the story behind the numbers that actually really matter. And you need to look at it holistically because the way people make decisions and their relationships with money isn't as emotional, hmm. not just purely you know, rational and factual based on the numbers. And so this is why these four quadrants have been mapped out to sort of show you know, your defender And your master both have amazing balance sheets. But your master's got it under control and is living a full and happy life. Your defender is not sleeping at night and worried and is stewing about whether they can afford to buy the grandkids a present or whether they can afford to go overseas or whether they can actually go out for dinner that night. And that's not a great outcome. (laughs) And the reality is they do. They've got enough, but they just don't feel it. They're really worried. And so you can help coach them through that. All right. So,
2: I guess, you know, and and I love I've been, like I said, I've been mapping out this quadrant. So, is it that, I mean, because kind of what I'm hearing is the place that we really want to get to for most people is master, but is that really suitable for everyone?
0: Well, we think so. Okay. (laughs) We think, yeah, we think it's achievable for everyone. You know, that's nirvana. Okay. That would be great. Hmm. Yeah. And we think through coaching because it's basically all that mental mindset. So, Mental time is money. That's what the research has shown. The, the further out you think, the more money you will be able to accumulate. Mm. And power is happiness. The more empowered you feel about your own financial destiny, the happier you're going to be. And the fallacy of the whole economic theory is that the more you have, then naturally happiness will follow. But the reality is, we've shown through Hetty Green and her story that mm. it is absolutely not necessarily the case. And yeah. you need to look at it holistically.
1: Hmm. And another fallacy we're going to dispel for us it's certainty of gains and uh, certain uncertainty of losses. Uh, that's this That's an interesting one as well because people making decisions, people investing in the markets all the time, making decisions in their everyday business reality, business and and that's one was very interesting. I pick up on your presentation as well. Perfect.
0: So this is all about the power of framing, I suppose, and how we frame a question um, will determine. And the outcomes, and this really comes back to research undertaken by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky back in 1979. So it's not new research at all, but it's it's really the cornerstone of behavioural finance. And what they discovered was this a theory called prospect theory, and part of the prospect theory sort of relates to loss aversion. And so what they uncovered is that as humans, we really hate losses and we will do whatever we can to avoid a certain loss. And you know the other thing we really hate is uncertainty. so <laughs> And so the theory that they um, came up with this prospect theory was to show that you know humans are first of all incredibly irrational, but actually predictably so. <laughs> and with that, that depending on how they would frame a question, even if the it was an equivalent scenario, the same people would show both risk seeking behaviour and risk adverse behaviour. So it just completely bonkers. So what was that experiment that they undertook? So basically, they said, "Right, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars." Another study? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the um, yeah, the I guess the a group of people that they were using as their study. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a thousand dollars. And I'm going to give you two options. Why uh, don't you play it with us? <coughs> yeah. Give it to Terence and to give it, it to me. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm, you've got a $1,000. Yeah. And I'm going to give you two options. I'm going to give you an option to double your money to $2,000 or I'm going to give you an option that nothing happens at all and you just keep your $1,000. Mm-hmm. So that's your first option. So that we're going to flip a coin. So if it says heads, you get another 1000 bucks. If it says tails, you just keep your money. You don't get anything. The second option is I'm going to give you – Five hundred dollars for sure. Now which option would you like?
2: Out of those two options. Yeah. So either you get a thousand dollars which you could double or keep. Yep. Or you could get five hundred dollars.
0: Yep, for sure. You still keep your thousand dollars so you get an extra five hundred dollars.
2: Ah, uh, so you start off... So if I've started off with $1,000... Yep, i $1,000. I think I misunderstood the question. Yep, yep, So I've already got the $1,000.
0: You've got $1,000. I've given you $1,000. I'm feeling very generous today. Okay, great. <laughs>
2: Glad you bought your wallet with you.
0: <laughs> and I've got another $1,000. most
2: profitable like... <laughs> podcast I've done so far, actually. Just think about that. Okay, so we, we start off with $1,000. Yes. Yep. We've then got the option to double it or keep it. But are these two separate decisions? Because what you're saying is there's an extra $500. Yep, so,
0: so one decision is so one option we'll call option a Mm -hmm. is that we're going to flip a coin Mm -hmm. and if the coin lands on heads i'm going to give you another thousand dollars and if it lands on tails nothing happens you just don't you just keep your thousand dollars so you've got the ability here on a coin toss to double your money or i've got a second option which is i'll just give you five hundred dollars now you got it for sure Right, rather
2: than flipping the coin. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, it's it's the option of either getting somewhere between a thousand an extra $1,000 yep. or zero, yep. or definitely getting the extra $500. Correct. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure.
1: <laughs> so, which one are you going for?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd have to make these decisions of this size. I'm glad we just started like 1000 or $500 and not, you know, a million. I will,
1: I will take, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, like be laughed at, I will take the first one, A, double.
0: I want to double my money. Yep. I, I'd be going B. Yep. Okay, perfect. So, what happened? Could you please profile us? Who is oh, yeah, defender? Yeah. Who's- so, well, so what's happening here is Nadi is pretty risk-seeking here. <laughs> <laughs> but you've actually taken the... Well, um, I, my, my rationale behind it is just I still got the grand. Yeah, and look, and it's the absolutely logical, rational decision to make. Like, absolutely. And so that's what all the economic theory would expect you to make that decision. But what the um, prospect theory and you know, I can't speak. What the prospect theory found is that most people would take option B. You know, mm. they were actually like, "I'll just take the five hundred dollars for sure. I'm happy with that. That's great, and that's actually the less risky option, right?" Mm. So that have I ended
2: up with fifteen hundred dollars? You have. You've done well. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. all good.
0: But you know, you've, you've it's a
2: profitable podcast. Yeah,
0: you've potentially missed out on you know another five hundred. Want to put
2: that coin Nadia?
0: Right <laughs> oh, that would be Damn. awesome! At the end of podcast, we actually flipping this coin. <laughs>
2: For sure. Let's do that. Honest. Let's okay, do that.
0: So, what, so that's that one. And then the the equivalent is now I'm going to give you $2,000. Yep. And I, I hope I can remember this. And um, you've got the option of losing nothing or potentially losing $1,000. Or you've got the option of losing $500 for sure. So this time you've got $2,000. So you started with $2,000. I'm going to flip the coin and, you know, heads, nothing happens. Tails, you lose $1,000 uh-huh. or you lose $500 for sure. Now, okay, what are you going to do?
2: So, you're losing somewhere between $0 and $1,000 depending on the flip of the coin or you're guaranteed to lose $500. Uh-huh. Yes. Yep. So, you start off with 2000 yeah. Flip of the coin, heads you've well, lost.
1: Well, I've got two thousand. You've got only fifteen hundred, so I'm sorry.
2: No, no, we haven't flipped your coin to begin with. You yeah. are out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're going. We're starting off with two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Option one is we get to flip a coin. Say it's heads, you lose zero, and tails you lose a thousand. So you end up with a thousand, or you just guarantee you end up with fifteen hundred dollars at the end of it.
0: Well, I will always go for option A because thousand is a thousand. Yeah. Because that yeah, way no, okay. she's going to have $2,000. So she's got the ability of taking home $2,000. Or 1000 or Or 1000 Yeah. Or you've got the ability. That's a higher risk. Yeah.
2: I don't really know. It wouldn't bother me too to, to much, to be honest. I, I'd probably go option B again. It's, was it I'll, I'll go with the, probably with the crowd, I think.
0: <laughs> well, funnily enough, the crowd f- flipped. And so they actually did hated the... Prospect of losing five hundred dollars for sure, so we're t- happy to take the risk oh. and to actually, you know, potentially not lose anything. Right. So that this is the whole premise behind prospect theory, right? Is that two equivalent situations, yeah, two different framings.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One framed as a, you know, again, one framed as a loss, mm-hmm. and then two different outcomes in terms of risk seeking versus risk adverse. Okay. And
2: so, with the answers oh, that we've yeah. given you to those two questions, mm-hmm. can we now are we able to be profiled, or is there a lot more involved with, in that?
1: Just even in the trivial sense, we won't hold you responsible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no. I think it's just showing that the way that we make decisions, like so, it's they're not based on sort of the laws of probability. It's more than that, and so it's really the fact that humans will do what they can to avoid a certain loss you know, yeah, in sure. general, right? Okay. And so, if you're framing something up as a loss people will do whatever they can to avoid that loss whereas mm. if you set frame something up as a gain like buy one get one free it's much more appealing
2: sure and i think i've got a real life experience which probably so maybe that's why i went against the crowd for that one because yeah. my real life experience is that when i was 21 i decided that I had some money in the bank and I needed to make a lot more yep. and do it as quickly as I possibly could and started trading shares yes. and then I quickly found futures and options.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> and I had basically my life savings. I had a little boy on the way. We didn't know it was a little boy at the time, but uh, it was a little boy on the way. And I had my life savings and I went heavily into futures. Basically, I was trading the Sydney price index which I think at the time was I think it was 60 times leveraged something like that it was a lot of leverage yeah that I really couldn't afford and I had everything in place so I'd trade this and I'd been making like for about three or four weeks I was making two thousand dollars a week which back then for a 21 year old 20 odd years ago was a decent amount of money and I thought yeah I've got this you know and then the market kind of crashed on me went down very quickly, but I had all of the stop losses in place, right? But I didn't want to take like that little loss thinking oh, I'm going to miss out on this, all this extra potential gain. So I already had the stop loss in place. So what I did is I overrode the stop losses and I ended up losing our life savings pretty much. It was about, I don't know, It was I think I went from being about eight or $10,000 up or something like that to being about thirty. Or forty thousand dollars down, wow. right? So it was a yep. big turnaround. Yeah, and just because I wouldn't lock in the small loss, that loss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> People that, don't like to lose. That's right. Exactly. It that's is exactly it like,
2: right. It, yes, yeah, it's something like that. That I mean, because because now I probably think about that differently. It, you know will experiences like that change someone's perspective
0: absolutely cool yeah absolutely and so and then this also comes into the whole behavioral biases components and I said before there's over a hundred of them and so you know this is like recency bias you expect you know what's happened most recently to continue to occur so if you've had you know a, a situation where you've been invested and it's been going up and up and up you just expect that that will continue on and that is you know what happens to you most recently matters more and so, and you expect the trend to continue, and so that then does result in poor decision making, either you know holding on to stocks that you shouldn't. <laughs> I just watched <laughs> um, this thing go down. Yeah, going to <laughs> And then there's the other bias, which is this whole sort of confirmation bias. So you start to read everything that backs your theory. So it's like maybe you're reading sure. stuff going, it's going to turn around. It's a blip at the moment, and you you basically Seek out information that um, supports, supports your supports argument, your argument. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another bias that um, we undertake. And then, you know, there's over 100 of these biases and once you sort of understand them, you can, uh, I guess, hold yourself to, in check. <laughs>
1: I like how people collect the noise which uh, sounds familiar to them and they say, therefore they t- hold it out as a truth. Yes, Where do we find the
2: list of all these biases?
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's I've, – I've, I've certainly got a lot I could share with you, <laughs> but, yeah, there's there's many of them. It's like, you know, following the herd or following the crowd. Yeah, you sure. Is another one, you know, and there's quite a lot of comfort in that and we talk about, you know, in real life that makes a lot of sense and it's a great example in terms of we're in a building, somebody calls fire, people start running to the exits, you can't see any fire, you can't smell any smoke, what are you going to do? You're going to run. And, mm-hmm. you know, in real life that's going to – hold you in good stead, you are likely to, you know, survive (laughs) if you follow the the herd, follow the crowd. In investing, maybe not so much. And I Mm -hmm. I gave an example, you know, during the the tech boom which happened here as well as offshore, the dot-com boom, there was a company called Sausage and um, I just remember because it, it was such a funny name, Sausage, and it had this tool called Hot Dog. And it went crazy. Like it was just a phenomenal rise and it kept on rising and it, its IPO was in 1996. And at the heart of um, the tech boom just before it all kind of, you know, tumbled down, its share was worth $40 and actually its founder sold most of their shares at that point like because there was no actual fundamental reason for it to be that high other than tech is fantastic, it's the future and therefore, you know, we're happy to pay up for tech and, and it was there was this euphoria for tech stocks and mm-hmm. my husband's a software engineer and he put all his super into tech stocks I'm like Gene, do you think you should be diversified have you not heard of diversification because oh, I'm in this industry and I love this industry and this industry is the future and I'm happy and of course you know it is the future and we look now we've got the the fang stocks in your know, Facebook your Amazon your Google etc you know tech stocks are absolutely dominating but You've got to have the fundamentals behind it as well. You've got to actually have a real business that's generating real returns to, and, and to those businesses, support.
2: I think those businesses are starting to generate real returns.
0: Yeah, 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 and that's right. And that, so that's what I'm saying. You know, they're he- mm. they're here to stay. But there was this euphoria at the time that just wasn't being matched by the actual underlying fundamentals. So anyway, long story short, that sausage stock went to a dollar eighty,
2: right from forty dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think something I haven't heard much about recently, (laughs) which might have been more. Might have been more, actually. I'm trying to Um, remember. (laughs) But, you know, haven't heard much about um, Bitcoin recently. Mm-hmm. I knew
1: you would yes. <laughs> And I think
2: it's probably, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's probably that's another it. example. But that's maybe another conversation.
1: In my, my theory, I'm just a conspiracy theorist. I think uh, what is happening is some smart puppeteers sitting there and orchestrating <laughs> or choreographing entire hysteria because they do know our biases and they exploit it. Hmm. And that's the reason why Sausage founder was selling his shares because he knew exactly the hysteria will die off, and it's his time.
0: Yeah, he knew the fundamentals of his company, right? It wasn't that it wasn't a great company, it's just that the price was just so disconnected to the actual value.
1: An entire Wall Street is based on where we will move his, his theory, because they work in combination with journalists. That's yep. what they do. It it just two uh, things. What theory we are going to push down the crowd's throat, and that's why be not being a sheep is in business game can lead to better results rather than being a sheep.
2: So, what would be your best advice for somebody who wants to start moving quadrants?
0: Yeah, well, I think see me. Yeah, definitely get advice. <laughs> you, you need a plan, right? And you need someone yeah. to help coach you through and someone to hold you to account. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, obviously get educated is, is helpful as well. But I actually myself I've got, have a financial advisor and I actually have a master's of financial planning. And I've been in the industry for many years, like over 20 years. But even for me, it's a benefit to actually go and talk to someone and actually, you know, have that person hold me to account and, you know, and actually put – their sort of laser light focus on it because i'm busy and as i said before you know the amount of information that we are consuming on a daily basis is fivefold where it was 20 years ago we're making a lot of decisions all the time time i get home sometimes i can't even think about what i want to eat i just don't even want to make any more decisions Mm -hmm. so having somebody help guide you and coach you through and identify what your you know biases are and what your challenges are and hold you to account is the best way forward All right, cool.
1: I've got another one, very quick one at the end of the podcast. choices. Yes. A lot of people um, now in the business is offering a lot of choices to their yes. consumers and oh, it's actually we offer this service and we offer that service. What does it do to the consumer's head, yep. customers? Yes.
0: So, what we know through behavioral finance is that humans are terrible at making complex decisions and I know even with my mobile phone plan, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't even compare these. These are so complicated. I don't even know what to do anymore. <laughs> um, So there is this expectation that the more choice we offer, the better, because then the consumer will be able to find exactly what they are looking for. We'll be able to match exactly their needs. But in reality, what we find is that if you actually overwhelm people with choices, they won't make a choice at all. Or if they do make a choice, they're likely to sort of be regretful of those choices. And so this goes to a really interesting study, which was done by Iyengar and Lepper back in 2000. And this is really the study that got me really interested in behavioural finance, actually. And so they did a study on jams and chocolates. And what they did is they had a limited selection of jams available to taste at a food market one Saturday, and then the following Saturday, they had a really extensive table of jams to taste and the point being that you would taste the jams and then hopefully go and buy a jar of jam now what table do you think generated the most interest
1: I know the answer so I'll let that answer
2: so we've got Sorry, the two scenarios. Just paint them out for me again. Yeah.
0: So we're two different Saturdays. Mm -hmm. First Saturday, we've got a table set up in a food market and it's got six jams on it Mm -hmm. to taste. Mm -hmm. And then we want you to go and, you know, taste it and then buy a jam. Mm -hmm. The following Saturday, same food market, but this time instead of six jams, we've got 26 jams available to taste. Yeah, we've got a lot more. Extensive, you know, we've got it all going on.
2: I'm betting on the less is better
0: in that case. So what happens is the extensive jam table drives a lot of interest. People get really excited about all the choices. Like, wow, you know, we've got mango, we've got papaya, we've got kiwi fruit, we've got, you know, apart from you know your normal strawberry and apricot, you know, this is fantastic. So definitely a lot more foot traffic came past the jam table with the extensive choice. But as you're sort of touching on which jam table sold the most jam, Well, it was the limited choice one and it wasn't an insignificant difference either. The smaller limited choice jam table sold 10 times more jam than the larger jam table. So again, just making it easy, curating the decisions to help people make a decision by not overwhelming them with choice is super important. And then this same group of um, behavioral scientists, actually psychologists, did it this another study this time with chocolates and with the chocolates they also asked a follow up question from people that had bought from both the limited chocolate choice table and the large chocolate choice table how happy they were with their purchases and those that had bought from the extensive chocolate table were actually less happy because then they were kind of second-guessing themselves because they had so many choices to make it's like I don't know yeah I'm okay did I make the right one should I have gone the mint instead of you know the peanut so it it was quite ironic that not only you know did that first of all we know that you know the extensive choice resulted in less sales those that then had bought from the extensive choice table were less satisfied with their choice as well and were second-guessing whether they'd made the right decision
1: how do you choose between butterscotch and uh, you know in in English, whatever they call it.
0: <laughs> Truffles.
2: What was the study called? Sorry. Yeah,
0: so it was, a, I think it was called Is Too Much Choice a Good Thing? I can definitely send you the link to it. And it's by Iyengar and that. Leper, and it's 2000. Um, I can 2000. see it in your
1: eyes because what you're doing right now, you're thinking about conversion. <laughs> Food traffic doesn't mean conversion.
2: No, I'm thinking about niche markets. There's
1: uh, Exactly, oh. niche as well.
2: People get scared to cut down their market. So, what I see when when I speak with business owners, entrepreneurs, there's this fear of missing out. So, if they cut out, yeah. you know, uh, uh, like 90% of the available market, they, they're, they're fearful that they're going to miss out on, you know, a big portion you, you of the market.
1: You have a good expression for this. You're going mile wide and...
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So, they go a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. Rather than going a mile deep and an inch wide. Yeah. And and uh this is a really powerful, I think, demonstration of the power of of niching because what you're saying is this is I've just summarized it, right? Is extensive choice equals more traffic, less sales, lower satisfaction. Correct. In general.
0: Correct. Right? Yep.
2: Limited choice is less traffic, ten times your sales. Yep. And higher satisfaction. Correct. Right. So it's a really good argument. So so to me I'd love to kind of read up more about that now it's, i've learned a lot on this podcast so i really appreciate you bringing all this stuff to our attention I, and and it's something that i think i'm sure we'll be talking more about in the and future
1: erica i would love to continue our dialogue the reason is because i am an active consultant i invite people to my boardroom and i help them to turn their lives around and this exactly at the exact point i'm working with a couple who has to change their biases and i at the moment couldn't back myself up with the research or like it's in in my blood i understand it and i do have a degree in psychology however i was always looking for how do I combine knowledge of human behavior and finances because it's just so close and yet I can't grab it and you just came and summed it up for me. <laughs> I am utterly grateful.
0: Mm. Oh, absolutely my pleasure, look, and I, I'm really pleased to be at Morningstar where they've got all these amazing researchers that are doing all this work so that I can then share.
1: And <laughs> I will keep an eye on these all researchers through you if you don't mind. Yeah, of course, yeah. And yeah. Uh, we will keep an active dialogue, Yeah, Continue. Perfect. Fantastic. Okay, so this
2: has been amazing. So again, thank you for bringing all of this great I knowledge. I can't
1: wait to flip the coin.
2: <laughs> yes, we have to flip the coin afterwards. We'll and do that afterwards.
1: We will take <laughs> pictures while you flip the coin. How <laughs> much
2: <laughs> na- money Nadia lost? Anyway, so <clears throat> can and, uh, you put real
0: money? Just a little bit, but real.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: make it interesting. Um, <laughs>
2: Sorry, Erica, how can our listener connect with you?
0: Oh, well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on social media as well. So, there are two ways. So, I'm Erica Hall AU on Twitter. I'm Erica Hall AU, I think, on LinkedIn as well. Where are you most active? Look, I, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So I have written a couple of behavioural finance articles on LinkedIn that you're welcome to look at. And so I have a, talked about the jam chocolate um, well, the choice.
1: Here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah.
0: Um, and I have also talked a little bit about behavioural finance relating to retirement actually and retirement mm-hmm. income. So, and I'm, I'm looking to sort of continue to write and um, post on LinkedIn with Twitter, if I attend conferences, I attend to sort of write there. But, um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the, the best. Perfect. All right. Wonderful.
2: Well, thanks for joining us today and we look forward I'm to speaking LinkedIn. with you again soon. <laughs> thanks, Erica. Thanks for listening to the
1: Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.